Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Ido Volk, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 9th of June. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, we look ahead to the French legislative elections. The United Left is battling for first place in the polls with Emmanuel Macron's party. But could the president really be forced to appoint a left winger as prime minister? Je demande aux Français. I'm asking the French people to elect me as prime minister. I'm asking them to elect me as Prime Minister to elect a majority of France unbowed and popular union MPs. Insoumis et Union Populaire. Then we turn to policing in America. Two years after the murder of George Floyd and the summer of Black Lives Matter protests, politicians have resisted calls to defund the police. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police, it's to fund the police. Fund them. So why is policing in crisis in the country? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. Katie, Ido, as always, we have a lot to get through today. So let us get into it. Starting out, France's legislative elections will be held. The first round will be this Sunday, the 12th of June, and then continuing second round next Sunday, the 19th of June. Macron is expected to win, though the United Left is running him closer than most expected. Ido, why? Why is the left doing better than it was thought they would? In April's presidential election, there was a kind of completion of the political realignment that had begun with Emmanuel Macron in 2017, defeating the two main parties of power, which had historically alternated between each other. And so you ended up with 80% of voters going for either Emmanuel Macron centrists, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's far left, or the nationalist right in the form of Zemmour or Éric Zemmour, the, the far right pundit, or Marine Le Pen. And those blocks, I mean, they weren't, there wasn't, they weren't that differently sized to each other. They all polled 20% or above. And what, what you can see with these legislative elections is 
the left really having capitalized on that and having uh, fresh off this second defeat in a row, the second time in a row they had failed to get a left winger through to the second round of the presidential election, they very quickly decided to align each align and have a kind of electoral pact between the main parties of the left, led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's the far left winger who came pretty close to getting into the second round that he didn't manage. And so this alliance is called the NUPE, N-U-P-E-S, uh, which stands for New Popular and Ecological Union. And its stated goal is winning a parliamentary majority of 289 seats and forcing Macron to appoint Mélenchon as prime minister. This is obviously a very ambitious task. So the left-wing party that Jean-Luc Mélenchon leads won 17 MPs at the last elections. So increasing the number of allied MPs by a factor of about 19 or 20 is obviously a very uh, an, an uphill struggle. But the fact that, that the left is united, and so you don't have kind of socialists battling with communists, battling with La France Insoumise, Mélenchon's party, means that the Le Nup is polling very well. They are currently estimated to be heading for about 155 to 180 deputies, which is not a 20-fold increase, but it's a 10-fold increase, which is obviously pretty good. But nonetheless, Macron's party is still expected to win. But it might not gain an absolute majority, and that would be an unprecedented event in recent uh, French history, at least since the presidential and parliamentary elections were synchronised to be held uh, one after the other. French voters have never failed so far to give their presidents majorities in parliament. And what that would mean is that Macron's coalition, the kind of edges of it, either on the right or the left, would suddenly become very influential. You have people like MPs allied to Edouard Philippe, who's a former prime minister who has this kind of a nascent centre-right party called Horizon Horizons. You have a certain number of MPs who are going to be affiliated to him. And if it were the case that, for example, Macron's party was, say, 20 off a majority, those handful of MPs, 20, 30, 40, would suddenly become very influential. And the same on the left. These MPs who have felt quite abandoned over the past uh, past five years because Macron has governed largely on the centre-right and the, the centre-left MPs are known to be pretty unhappy with some of the policies that Macron's pursued, they would suddenly have a lot more power. So this this kind of success that the, the NUP is seeing in particular is probably not likely to, to win an overall majority, but what it might do is hobble Macron's ability to pass legislation such as budgets, for example. So it's clear what that means domestically, right? Like, obviously, if you don't have the sort of control over your legislature that you would hope, harder for you to pass your domestic agenda through. What do you think it might mean for foreign policy or would it not really have much impact at all? In terms of foreign policy, obviously a lot of foreign policy is a reserved competence for the president and the president will decide a large part of it. But nonetheless, clearly a government has to have the confidence of parliament. And it's possible that on some of the more contentious political issues of the day, Ukraine, the EU, some kind of international incident, maybe relations with the US or whatever. Macron, for example, failing to have a parliamentary majority could be hobbled in some uh, aspects. Now, of course, in the pretty unlikely event that Macron is forced to appoint a prime minister of a different political persuasion to his, most probably Mélenchon, that would clearly hobble France's foreign policy, even though constitutionally they would get, they would come to some sort of agreement and some sort of working arrangement. Their political instincts are so different and neither would feel bound by loyalty to the other, that they there would clearly be some sort of conflict. Mélenchon might have particular views on Russia or the EU or the relationship with the US or any kind of number of issues. And Macron might have different 
positions and formulating a coherent foreign policy that would that both could follow would clearly be very difficult. I have one last question on this for each of you. So Macron recently said, and I think this is the latest of a few times that he's made a similar point, but basically it was that Russia shouldn't be humiliated. We can't humiliate. I guess for Katie, my question is, what did you think of that? And my question for Ido is how much is, obviously this is not the presidential election, Macron's already won re-election, but how much is Macron's continued position, posturing statements playing in all of this? But Katie, we'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like we're so far from any meaningful state where that's the issue of concern is whether or not or how far to humiliate Russia. That's just not what's happening right now. You know, I think that the kind of real life and death day-to-day issue is getting Western support to Ukraine to as best as it can halt or slow the Russian invasion and and being able to to push back. So I think it's unhelpful because it plays into this idea that I'm sure is widespread in Russian elite circles, that there are real divisions among European leaders and that the Kremlin will be able to exploit that, that, that there's not unity. There's not a united front. So I think it would be far more helpful to focus on what are the urgent needs that Ukraine has and how can the West support that both economically and in terms of and in terms of security than any sort of hypothetical conversation about whether or not or the, the extent to which to attempt to, to humiliate Putin, which I don't think is in France's gift or indeed in any other world leaders. Um, I mean, I'd be interested to, to hear too from Edo the extent to which that war has played into these elections or not. Is, is this a major issue that people are are campaigning on one side or, or the other? And how is that playing out there in the domestic That's a better way of putting, yeah, that's a better way of putting my question. So basically, to what extent is the war slash Macron's particular interpretation of what it means to be a statesman relevant in these legislative elections? Well, so Macron hasn't really been doing very much campaigning at all. I think constitutionally he's prevented from doing it because nominally he's kind of above, the president is above parliament. So he hasn't been doing very much campaigning. But it's certain that, for example, the cost of living is a huge issue now and largely related to Ukraine. And we've seen some arguments made by Macron's opponents in particular about sanctions, for example, arguing that sanctions on Russia exacerbate the cost of living crisis and urging kind of more caution on sanctions. In general, foreign policy doesn't tend to feature hugely. And I think this this campaign has largely been characterized on the terms set by Mélenchon. His pitch is pretty much everyone who hates Macron, vote for me and let's hobble him for five years and get a different uh, get a different uh, set of policies. Though that has been basically the the way this, rightly or wrongly, that's probably what, not what is going to happen, but rightly or wrongly, uh, that's largely been the way this has been debated. The far right is pretty marginal. Much of the kind of discussion of Macron focuses on, Macron's party focuses on whether he'll be denied a, a majority and in extremists, whether he might be forced to appoint Mélenchon as, as prime minister. And I think that's largely where it's gone. The good news for listeners who are interested in this is that I believe you are doing the France Alexis coming back. Is that right? It is, yeah. Yes, for not one, but two more, two final shows. So after the legislative elections on Sunday and then again on next Sunday, we'll have a pop-up podcast for you, our listeners, that you can find in just the normal feed wherever you get your podcasts, provided you are a subscriber to this podcast, which we hope you are. 
Stay tuned for more on that. All right, switching gears now ever so slightly. So over the past two years, there have been calls to defund the police from the American political left, but police departments have not, contrary to popular belief, actually been defunded. And in fact, by and large, budgets have increased. And in cases where they did not increase as much as they have in the past, it's in cities where the city budget overall did not increase as much as they have in the past. And yet roughly half of homicides are unsolved. So what is going on with policing in America? This has been prompted by, one, these statistics, and two, several high-profile cases in which the police, just to put it very bluntly, really did not do their jobs. So you have the shooting, the school shooting in Texas, where police, not only were they outside for 90 minutes and saying, oh, well, we didn't want to get shot, but just continually changed their story about what happened, what the timeline was, who did what. There was a case in Arizona where a man drowned and you have it came out that the officer said, well, we're not going in to to help you. And I guess the frustration that I have in this country is that there's this mentality that the police cannot fail. They can only be failed. Right. If you if the police aren't doing their jobs, then it's because they don't have enough police or enough money or enough support. The police actually have a lot of money and a lot of support. And I understand that defund the police is politically unpopular, but I guess a frustration that I have is just that it's like politicians need to find a way and the public, like if you're an elected official serving a community, part of your job is to hold other institutions in that community accountable. So for example, in San Francisco, a progressive district attorney was just recalled in part because people were worried about high crime. Well, guess what? In San Francisco, the police were clearing about 8% of crimes. So if 92% of crime is just going unsolved, is that the DA's fault? Or at some point, do we say perhaps the San Francisco Police Department could do its job? Katie, you also live in this country. So I'm, I'm curious, to, rather than just me ranting, although I think it's an informed rant, I'd like to hear your thoughts well, as well. I would like to trigger more um, informed ranting, which I, I actually find just informative and not ranting. I, I mean, the thing that occurs to me is I wonder to what extent this has got stuck on the slogan. Is defund the police just a catastrophically bad way to talk about this that the right has really seized on and that has precluded being able to have a a real conversation about policing in America that was clearly so desperately needed, you know, not least you know, the incidents you outline in the last couple of weeks, but the very real issues we've seen o- over so many years now in terms of racial injustice and just the experience of, of so many people in this country that they feel the police force doesn't not only doesn't serve them, but is an active threat to them and to their children. So I wonder to what extent have we got stuck on the language here? Would there be a a political appetite to talk about how to improve the police or change the police or rethink the police if we could get beyond the sloganeering? Or is this at heart just such a politically divisive issue that it's difficult to have a sensible conversation about it? Yeah, I think just to pick up on two things that you said, One is that one criticism of the police is that they spend so much time not focused on violent crime, but on, let's call it other activity within communities, specifically lower income communities, specifically black and brown communities, that there's such low trust in those communities toward the police that when it comes time to to solve violent crime, there isn't cooperation or a sense of trust between communities and the police. So that's one thing. The other is that yeah, I mean, just to to reiterate what you said at the end there, 
there has to be some way to say, please, could you solve more than 8% of crime that isn't taken as, well, you don't care about the lives of police officers. That's it. it, it the response to Black Lives Matter in some corners was Blue Lives Matter. I'm sorry, that's absurd. First of all, you're not blue. That's a job that you've elected to do, that you've signed up to do. And second of all, like saying, please, could you focus on the core elements of your job and, or, or what? I mean, but I guess as I'm saying this, do the police. And normally this is where somebody pops in and is not all police. My uncle is a great officer. Sure. This is not about your uncle. This is about like an institution that we have that's clearly not working. Do the police see their core job as what those of us criticizing them see their core job as being? Because there are those who say, well, if you look at the history of police in this country, it's always just been about racist control of certain parts of the population. It's never actually been about solving violent crime. And therefore, the institution itself is like you, you can't fix an institution that is inherently broken. But I guess to your point, Katie, given that argument is not at the moment politically palatable for elected officials, is there some combination of like words, phrases, actions, deeds that will inspire people who have run for elected office to serve their communities that will allow them to say, actually, serving my community is not continuing to give a blank check. I mean, literally just millions of dollars and no criticism to this part of our community. Well, and also, I mean, it strikes me that there is a somewhat circular conversation as a recent implant to this country and somewhat of a cultural outsider. There is a sort of inherent contradiction in, you know, on the one hand, it seems to be impossible to talk about meaningful gun control. On the other hand, the same people who do not want to talk about gun control and who want to talk about Blue Lives Matter don't want to acknowledge how many of those police lives are being taken by guns. You couldn't, both of those things can be true. It just, it strikes me that it is so difficult now here to have a conversation. I think we're so siloed. So we can, mm -hmm. we can get together and talk about what difference would gun control make? How might, how might that make the lives of individual police officers safer? How might that enable them to get out of the armored vehicles that you see them patrolling the, the streets in here, which is the opposite of community integration and being able to build trust with the, with the community. You know, it, it is still extraordinary to me to see the kind of assets that police forces in this country have, which I have only previous seen previously seen in war zones. Some of this is stemming from the same issue, but it just seems it's, it's so difficult to talk about that because they're, they're, these words are trigger points for both, and to be fair, for both sides. But I wonder to what extent you see this playing in now to, to the midterms and to what extent we may be set on this trajectory, because is defund the police going to be like critical race theory, that it's going to be something that was actually never what was being talked about introducing in reality, but really helps to get votes out for the right and helps to get more radical people into office. I mean, I think you're right. And I think that we've already seen that happen. But I also do think that reality, I mean, I think the pendulum has swung in one direction quite clearly, but reality being what it is, like at a certain point, Hopefully. Uh, and to be fair, there are outlier cases in which there are progressive DAs. There are politicians who are willing to do what is unfortunately a politically courageous thing and criticize the police. I just think that like you can't. Uh, politics are to an extent 
an attempt at recreating reality, reshaping reality. But reality in this case, like in Washington, D.C., we have 3,600 police. The mayor is saying that she wants 400 more and that that will be the thing that stops rising crime. Well, you already have 3,600 police officers and crime is still rising and you're still like you've been increasing the budget. You have this very large police force to your point about gun control. It just it it does feel like the only answer you get is, well, we need more guns. We need more cops. We need more guns. We need more cops. And I think at some point reality, maybe this is overly optimistic, which is a change for me on this podcast. But I do think that at some point, perhaps reality itself and the failures of police will force that cycle to break. I have a piece on this that we will leave in the show notes should you want to read more. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said, on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And for now, we are going to turn to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. So our question this week comes to us from Dan in New York. And the question is about uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. And is there any way we can get reliable information on his health as opposed to irresponsible doctors and would-be doctors diagnosing how he sits or holds a table? And who is likely to take control if he is incapacitated or drops dead? Thank you, Dan. Katie, you recently wrote a piece provocatively titled, Is Putin Dead? So I will let you take the first stab at this. Yeah, so the short answer to both the intentionally provocative title of that piece and to the first part of Dan's question is no, Vladimir Putin is not dead, but unfortunately neither is there any real way to get reliable um, information on his health. The context to the question and the why does this matter and why are we talking about it and why in the heck did I write 1200 words about it is that I felt like there was growing speculation. We've seen the rumors really build over a number of months now along the lines that there is something seriously wrong with Putin. I should say right at the top, there is no credible, independent, crucially verifiable information that that is the case. The vast majority of this is based on analysts, as Dan points out, scrutinizing video footage, um, for instance, of a meeting he held with his defense minister where he did he appeared to grip a table um, for 12 minutes. And that fed this idea that he's trying to hide a tremor, that his health is deteriorating. People have commented on his his bloated features as possibly showing that he's receiving steroid treatment. Um, he was seen with a blanket across his knees at the May 9th victory parade. So all of this has kind of fed into this um, really quite feverish rumor mill that there is something seriously wrong with him. Um, the only thing close to, I think, a respectable, reliable sourcing on this um, has come from a, an independent Russian media outlet, Project, which put together what, what they said were leaked travel documents that showed that he was, assuming these documents are, are, are correct, showed that he is regularly traveling with a, a quite expansive retinue of doctors, including in particular one specific oncology surgeon and two ear, nose and throat specialists, Project said that is consistent with treatment for for thyroid cancer. I mean, the massive caveat to all of this is who, who knows? And even if he is receiving treatment for a serious illness, that doesn't necessarily uh, mean that his days are going to come to an end anytime soon. I think what is driving all of this to an extent is a desire to have some answer both to his actions in Ukraine and some easy way out. The idea that Putin is terminally ill has kind of fed this idea that perhaps if Putin would just leave the scene, somebody else more reasonable and more rational would take over. They would pull the Russian troops out, the war would stop, and we could all go back to you know life as of before February 2022. But as I sort of explored in this piece, that relies on the idea that it would be somebody more rational and more reasonable who would follow Putin. And there's just absolutely no reason to believe that is the case. In fact, it could be somebody considerably more conservative 
who follows Putin. So I would say we should be uh, very careful what we wish for here. Um, to briefly answer the second part of Dan's question about who would take control if he is incapacitated or drops dead. The constitutional answer to that is the Prime Minister, Mikhail Mishustin, who would become acting president and then there would be a new election within three months. Incidentally, how, how Putin took over, Yeltsin passed power to him as acting president and then he uh, stood for election in the presidential election and began his first term. It seems unlikely to me that the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister, Mishustin, would be a long-term bet for the president. He is a sort of quite a low-profile technocrat-type figure with, with no real political base of, of his own. So it's difficult to see that he would be lightly the permanent replacement for Putin. The only reason to count against that would be, as was the case with Putin, if more powerful figures behind the scenes wanted a, a consensus candidate and a front man who they believed would follow orders. Perhaps he could be somebody who would meet that profile. But the lived experience pointing Putin for that reason and, and how, you know, how that has turned out over the past two decades might count against that. So look, we simply don't know. Some of the other figures who are, who are bandied around here are Nikolai Patrushev, the head of the Security Council, who is, Mark Galliotti has described him as the most dangerous man in Russia and a hawk's hawk. He is to the right of Putin. Another possibility is Alexander Bortnikov who's the, the head of the, the FSB, which is one of the um, successor agencies of, of the KGB. I dropped these names in there, not because we have any particular reason to believe that there is a succession plan and that it would be one of them, but merely to show it could be somebody worse than Putin. So we should be careful what we wish for in terms of a, a quick exit for him from the Kremlin. Um, final point on this would be that where this could become really meaningful and move beyond just sort of idle speculation and rumors that it's interesting to discuss, or if it starts to become clear that there, that Putin's health is deteriorating, could lead to people around him and those in the regime elite to begin seriously thinking about who comes next. Nobody wants to be the first to start that conversation. It would be extraordinarily dangerous to be the person who tries to start that discussion now. But, you know, this is a system that thinks first of... First and last about preserving itself, and, and there there will be no sentimentality around Putin if it becomes clear that his days are numbered. Then you'll start to see serious jockeying for for who takes over from from him. So there's a serious political point behind all, all this all the speculation as as to how this could could become more serious. But it's not a it's it's not the basis on which to make a policy um, or strategy or really to believe that it that that this in itself will be what brings an end to the war in Ukraine. Rule number one of the New Statesman World Review podcast is things can always get worse. So thank you for that reminder, Katie. We are going to put a link to Katie's piece on this in, that's right, show notes. Thanks to all of you sent in your questions. You can send yours in to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for an interview with Bruno Masias on his recent trip to Ukraine. If you are a regular World Review listener and you have not already subscribed, please subscribe. It really does help. Our producer's been Adrian Bradley. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.